You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Welcome, everyone, to our August 26th edition of Offscript American Theater Magazine's live uh, conversation with folks in the field and updating you what we're up to. I'm really excited about today's episode. We're honored to have as our guests uh, John Michael Hill and Namir Smallwood, a Passover on Broadway, the show on Broadway right now. It's not an exaggeration to say. Uh, that's the set, Wilson Chin's beautiful set behind me. Uh, I'm not actually on the set, but that's my background. Um, I'm Rob Weiner-Kent, I'm the Editor-in-Chief. My pronouns are he, him. I am, I am broadcasting actually from the offices of TCG in Manhattan on the lands of the Lenape Nations. I'm joined from far away by... I'm J.R. Pierce, uh, Associate yeah. Editor. Uh, he, him pronouns. I am coming from Chicago, actually, uh, which is on the lands of the Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria. There's a Chicago angle to today's conversation, um, which we'll get to. I mean, the play has a little history there, but so do our, our guests. Um, real quickly to go over some of the things we've been, it's been a busy couple of weeks of coverage in American theater, a lot of interesting stuff, no shortage of things to cover, even though there aren't that many shows on stage, they're starting to gear up. Um, I would just give a shout out to our other podcasts uh, that had some really rich episodes this week. The subtext talked to Jacqueline Goldfinger, Philadelphia playwright, whose focus is a lot on not just playwriting, but on teaching and, and training and trying to uh, broaden the audiences for theater by training it differently and, and teaching people playwriting differently. Also on Three on the Isle, a real gem of an episode with James Lapine uh, talking about his new book, Putting Together, which he, it's a really wonderful memoir of, of making uh, Sunday in the Park with George. And it's well-trod territory, but from James's point of view, talking about Sondheim and that production and that sort of Sondheim's first foray downtown, not really downtown, it was it was 42nd Street, but it was his first uh, foray into nonprofit sort of uh, experimental for Sondheim theater. It's, it's a fascinating read um, and it's a great conversation. So I highly recommend check out Three on the Isle, that podcast. Um, one of the big stories, I think we did one of the most important stories we've done in a while was by you, JR, was about theaters restaffing but not necessarily hiring everyone back. Uh, tell us a little bit about that story, JR. Yeah, that was a, a tough one to report. Uh, a lot of technicians who, uh, technicians and designers I know as well, uh, who, look at, who work in places like the costume shop or the set shop, who are so crucial to getting shows back on stage are now looking to be rehired at theaters that they were let go from a year and a half ago. And a lot of those theaters both because of the push to be more diverse in their staffing and because of money constraints are sometimes not looking to bring back the people who had called a place home for a decade in some cases or more. Uh, and so it's just a really tough time where people are, have been hoping for 16, 18 months now to return to their regional theater and their regional theaters have been saying no or have been asking them to 
reapply to jobs that they used to have or newly formed, newly restructured jobs, and sometimes not at the salary they had been making. Um, so I think it, it's a really complicated and tough situation for everyone involved, but uh, hopefully the piece gives a little light and hopefully we can all give each other a little grace uh, during this time as we, we try to get back into theaters. Yeah, it's a complicated story and it, it created, I think, I think some good conversation, some exasperation among, uh, not with you in the story, but just with the situation online. So that, that was a crucial story. Not always fun to report those, but you do a great job. Uh, on a more positive note, um, uh, David Chavez sent us a piece. Uh, you can also tell us about that if you want, JR, about new play, a new play development program that's really made, made waves over the past decade or more. Yeah, David wrote about uh, Madeline Oldham, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, Madeline Oldham uh, at Berkeley Repertory Theater as who uh, founded their ground floor, the ground floor, which is their new play development program. Uh, that's had people like Lauren Yee, Julia Cho, Anna Devier-Smith, and even Town went, went through that program as part of their development journey to Broadway. Um, and so we talked to Madeline, who had some really beautiful insights, both on how the programs changed over the last decade and also where it still needs to improve. And, you know, when we're talking about changing the canon and adding new voices and propping up the right kinds of diverse voices, like it's, it's a big conversation, how these new play development programs are functioning. So I think it's a, a really nice insight into how that particular one runs. Yeah, it's a good piece, definitely worth looking at. Uh, I guess on another positive note, we had a couple pieces about what I would call sort of uh, ancestors is too old and grand a term. It's more like uh, progenitors, trailblazers. Uh, Dr. Doris Derby, who's one of the co-founders of Free Southern Theater, which went and made uh, theater on the front lines of the civil rights movement in Mississippi in the 60s, with, uh, along with John O'Neill and uh, I forget the guys, Gilbert, John Gilbert, I think. I forget the guy's name, Gilbert. Uh, in any case, she occasion for her recollections of that time making theater on the front lines of the civil rights movement was she's got a new award with Junebug Productions in New Orleans. With Junebug is sort of sort of the inheritor of Free Southern Theater, and she's got a new award to uh, to go to Black women theater makers or, or institutions making theater. Um, so that's a good interview with her. Another one we uh, profiled. She died over the weekend. Mickey Grant. The composer, performer, trailblazer, who's, who, who's most famous for Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which was on Broadway in two, 1972, I believe. It came close to winning a Tony, but I guess Little Night Music swept in. Um, it's a wonderful series of interviews that Nathaniel Nesmith, our sort of go-to interview interviewer of legacy folks from that era, he was conducting a series of interviews with, interviews with her around her, uh, her 92nd birthday in June. He didn't expect that, she, that it would be a post posthumous interview, but he had these interviews and it, it's a wonderful look at a, at a real pioneer in the field. Um, uh, I highly recommend that. And you can look, if you click on Nathaniel Nesmith's uh, byline there, you can see a bunch of great interviews he's done with Thelma Oliver, um, Hope Clark, a bunch of other names that, who used to be big names in the 60s and 70s, particularly in New York and black theater. It's, it's kind of a lot of gold there. Um, on a more sobering note, uh, uh, there's, we've reported a lot of news about vaccine mandates, Chicago, DC, obviously Broadway League uh, has mandated vaccine cards at the door. 
Um, Portland, we didn't report that one yet, but I just shared a piece about uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, and JR, you get all the fun reporting jobs. You're doing a piece now, which we can tease, it's gonna come out probably this week, probably tomorrow, about how theaters are preparing for going, people coming back uh, and, and their hesitancy about that. Could you talk a little bit about that reporting? Yeah, it's it's sobering, I think is the right word. Uh, and this was kind of the impetus for this was seeing that we did start getting a handful to a dozen uh, companies looking at postponing productions because of COVID-19, the Delta variant, uh, or canceling productions entirely. Uh, there have been festivals that have had to cancel. Uh, San Francisco Fringe canceled their entire festival this season. Uh, so on one hand, you get the vaccine and mask mandates that are hopefully going to keep people in theater. And then on the other hand, you have people who have very real concerns about just the mere fact of asking people to leave to come to the theater if they're in an area that, say, has a, vaccine, a vaccinated population that's 50% or below, uh, is that dangerous to put to even ask them to come? So um, it's it's a very real question. And from pretty much everyone I've heard, it's, it's a very moral choice right now and a very personal choice, which is uh, falling heavy, heavily on some leaders' shoulders. So, yeah. Well, we'll keep reporting. It's been a really weird and tumultuous and uncertain time to report on theater. Uh, as we indicated earlier, the, 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 the stories about layoffs, furloughs, financial state of theaters and of the freelancers who rely on that work. So far, we haven't heard, I'm knocking on Formica here, uh, we haven't heard of any theaters. Uh, we've heard of postponements to Signature Theater is one here in New York and some cancellations, Magic Theater in San Francisco. So far, nothing about staffing. But, you know, again, we're monitoring this, we're keeping an eye on this, rooting for the theater, but we also want people to be safe and feel safe coming back to the theater. Uh, and speaking that was of one of the, sorry, before we yeah, transition, sure. I just was like, one of the positive things that came out of that staffing report was this idea that the, the funding, the federal funding is helping some theaters be able to weather whatever the Delta variant is gonna throw at us a little better than they were able to handle the original COVID. So I'm, I kind of wanna keep that as a silver lining is hopefully people are a bit more financially secure at this point thanks to government funding finally starting to come in uh, than they were heading into the, the pandemic in the first place. I mean, I think in general, that's one of the positive themes, even though there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fatigue with, with masks and COVID still being around. One of the positive ways to see it is that we're, we know about it now, we're prepared for it. We're not totally in the dark about what can happen and how it happens. So hopefully we, we can be smart about it, safe. Um, and speaking of safety and welcoming to the theater, rough segue to a wonderful piece by Ana Sofia Villanueva uh, about sobriety as a social justice issue. We'd had a piece uh, that one of our wonderful freelancers, Amelia Merrill, wrote a couple years ago about theater makers in recovery and how it's, it can be hard to come back to the theater, uh, not just because you might be asked to mime drinking on stage, but that drinking and alcohol is part of fundraisers, galas, and uh, a lot of theaters don't even think about that and how, how, whether it's welcoming to people in recovery and how hard it can be. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a good piece. And she, she frames this particularly in the way that this falls heavily on people of color who are already 
uh, don't feel welcome in many theater spaces. So the intersectional sort of like pressure she feels as a woman of color in recovery, it's a wonderful piece. It, it ignited a lot of conversation, some controversy online. Um, another one in a sort of related vein, which I think was a great piece by playwright Sarah Mantel was about um, what she calls resilient services, which she discovered um, in working on a piece with Artist Repertory Theater in Portland, Oregon, that they have a resilient services director there to help help folks who are working on traumatic uh, material, actors, writers, actually anyone in the process. She's a writer, so she talks about how the plays that she writes and what she writes about lives in her body and she, she needs support for that. Um, she also happens to cite a deep trans wonderful piece in backstage in which she talked, she was the first I read to talk about the mental health stipend offered to the actors in the Broadway production of Passover. Um, because that's a, a play which reenacts violence, uh, anti-Black violence, and could be seen as traumatic. And I think in any case, uh, that's my rough segue today. Hope you read that story, but I'd like to talk now with two of those actors, Namir Smallwood and John Michael Hill, our guests today. So happy to have you on, on today. I uh, welcome John, Namir. Um, I saw the production two nights ago. I realized it was really uh, a lively audience, very joyful, even despite the play subject matter. I felt the joy. We published the play in the September 2018 issue, sort of see the cover. Um, and um, Antoinette in an interview talked about the radical joy that she was trying to, even then in that, in that earlier version of the play. And I could feel that off. And I just realized this was the first performance since the reviews came out, right? They came out on Sunday after the opening. And then you came back and everyone had read the reviews and they were, mo they were mostly raves. They were mostly just totally positive. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to, to play a show for an audience after all this time? Either one of you can take. I, 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 a lot of reviews have talked about it. And I felt just like the ecstasy of being in the space, the joy of that, even you know, given the subject matter. Um, and I think where the new ending lands also maybe gives us more room for that as well. How, how, does, it, how, does, how does it feel to be up there? Uh, I mean, it feels really amazing. Um, and we, we have like an opportunity to recreate, you know, uh, the sacred space of theater, you know what I mean? And, and in the, in over the past year, you know, we've been having like this, all these different kinds of reckonings and everything. And it's like, now we get to see each other, hopefully as fully fledged human beings, you know, and, and having this particular play, this particular story be the first one up, you know, I think is, it's really a blessing to be able to be a part of that and for people to see that after such a horrific, you know, year and a half. So, yeah. Yeah, man, it's been exhilarating. We have to think back to the first preview. Like that was a while ago now, but that house, that was probably 
the loudest uh, ovation pre-show that I've ever heard. It went on for minutes and it, it speaks to what audiences have been craving and one in wanting to get back to that ritual of theater. And so there's, we feel, I think we feel really honored to be that show, to bring that to people and give that to people. It's exhilarating every night. Um, and there, we feel a bit of a responsibility <laughs> to reopen Broadway right, you know? Yeah, I could feel the sense that, that you and the whole team, Antoinette, Danya, everyone um, feels that almost pressure, responsibility, and you totally, you know, making the most of it, like like taking the opportunity to really welcome us back and sort of create that sacred space. I think because of the subject matter of the play and the way it has a ritual aspect to it almost really furthers that. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about, it was supposed to open in September, and then I was surprised as anybody to get in my email the invite to the opening or, or to the press, the press openings were before that, but like, was that, I mean, obviously it wasn't news to you, but was, was, did you feel extra pressure? Did you feel like, oh my God, are we ready yet? Are we ready to open? You felt ready? You felt like ready to show this to the world? Ready to? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We were, you know, yeah. we were maybe waiting on some more rewrites that we thought were gonna come, but Antoinette and Danya sort of felt like we were there already we were in a good spot and we should just hone what we already have so it moved up from september 12th to um august 22nd and uh there was there was a small discussion about it but there wasn't a lot of resistance we were pretty much just like yeah we've got a week we'll be fine <laughs> yeah. yeah you were doing it you had the audiences there you're ready to go yeah right is that does that comfortability like come from the fact that you both have done this show before and it was kind of like was it still in your body you felt like that you kind of had that that sense memory from your past productions yeah it wasn't it wasn't difficult to uh to relearn you know what 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 i like to say relearn the music relearn the score of the play um and it's just like working with this these two guys, Gabe Bieber and John Michael Hill, is just, it's a joy for me because it's like we established something three years ago. Like we're all very similar. It's kind of frightening. <laughs> but, and we work, I think that those similarities allow us to really work really, really well together and we take care of each other. So, I mean, it's 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 just a, a great thing, you know. What I mean, that's part of the exhilaration that we feel when we do the show every night, you know, and that that makes it that much easier and that much more fun to do the show, you know, night in and night out, you know, with full energy, you know what I mean? A quick a quick story to illustrate just how. <laughs> <laughs> attentive these guys are uh you know a lot of actors you do a show with some actors and you could tell that they're not really listening to you or paying attention they're kind of doing their own thing that doesn't happen with this group a lot like uh last night my blood sugar level had dropped so low during the show uh, i have a type 1 diabetes i was sweating profusely and there's a scene where Kitch, uh, Namir's character, 
is trying to lift my character up and he assumes the the person of Reverend Mrs. And on this particular night, he noticed that I was way sweatier than I've ever been. And he sort of used his hoodie to dab my forehead and take care of me. But see that level of detail to even see that I was different and that something else was going on and react to it in the moment is is sort of the level that we're able to uh, achieve with actors that are you know taking care of each other and really listening and have done the show before but you know there's there's a lot of love there yeah yeah and love that seems to to come with time you all have worked together quite a bit but i'm curious like if you look back at the first time you all interacted with the passover script like the first iterations you saw how has how has the play changed in your mind from like the first time you worked on it to now performing it on broadway Whoa, I mean, the first time I read it was probably ooh, four, about five years ago, thereabouts. And it was radically different. <laughs> um, and then to read the, the, the version in 2018, it was different than than that you know what i mean so it's it's just it's really f it's it's fun to to see like where antoinette was able to go you know like what gear she was able to shift to you know to get this particular version of this play and then to have three different versions of the play is just wild <laughs> you know so yeah, is 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 very different. Like I, when I first read it, I could feel the the impact of it, and I knew that it was going to be like a pretty big deal. It's going to be important. Like I knew it from the first read, and I'm glad that that hasn't changed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Namir's got that vision. I'm I'm a <laughs> I'm slower. I need to hear it and and be in the room with everybody to really get the impact. The first reading we did of it at Steppenwolf, I was, you know, uh, hesitant to to jump on board. It was it was completely different than what we ended up with in Chicago. There was a whole new character in the play. So, um, it's been a test for sure because each time we do it Antoinette comes in with something that speaks to the time that we're in and in a normal process you would be saying yes to a script and coming in and working on that in this process you you get to rehearsal and and discover <laughs> new things that you're going to end up having to do <laughs> it sort of asks that of you and uh I'm I'm actually grateful because at each iteration, I think it was the right play for the time. And now with this ultimate um, production, there are resources that that help tell the message better. And there's also Antoinette's growth as an artist that that she's found really specific ways to to tell this story even more clearly, more powerfully than before. Yeah. And Antoinette said before in interviews that 
that she hopes to keep all three versions available for people to produce them. As actors, can you like see yourself performing other versions now that you've had this one? Like, can you can you see going back to a, a different ending essentially? I I this is the first that I've even thought about it. Right. I I think that would be tough because even just having been doing this for a few weeks, the the new ending has more of a certain uplift with a warning in there. And even that has changed my uh, uh, post-show decompression. It's it's not as intense as it had to be before when Moses was being murdered. <laughs> so uh, I'm 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 curious. I'll I'll continue to think about that. What do you think, Namir? Yeah, man, I'm right there with you. I mean, the last re the last iteration was tough for me mm -hmm. to decompress from and you know to like get away from um and i realized that i was really really tired after every show if we had two show days were the worst um, <laughs> you know but this time it's like i have energy at the end of the play you know um this time i i i can like it takes a while for me to go to sleep now you know, I'm like up all hours of the night because I'm still kind of jazzed, you know. Wow. Because of the the storytelling, you know what I mean? So, yeah. But I, I, I would like to think about that, too. Yeah, I, I, I ask because, like, having, since I'm still in Chicago, I haven't seen the version you're performing on Broadway, but I had a chance to read the script. And reading that, just the impact of the new ending versus the the one that Spike Lee recorded and like knowing how that sat with me afterwards uh yeah I was very very curious and I'd also love to ask you does it feel like because one of the concerns I had and I, I wrote a little bit about this um having seen a production in Philadelphia shortly before you all uh started on Broadway was uh concern over like how the glitz and glamour of Broadway would affect kind of how the play lands. Have you found that it still lands pretty much the way you want it to, even though it's, you know, got the the big Broadway moniker on it? Yeah, that's a Danya Tamor thing. Yeah. When your director has a astute eye um, and one particularly uh, focused on the storytelling, and she she uses the tech and whatever resources we have now only to uplift the story we're trying to tell and if and she checks in with us she's like is this getting in the way of of the moment and you know to her credit there was a moment that i was like you know what i really just want to have this moment with namir and she adjusted it so uh i'm sure that is a concern in in we, she has said herself that we could invite people into the rehearsal room, do this play, and we'd be good. Yeah. But uh, I think she does an incredible job of using the uh, tech to support Antoinette's story. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, absolutely. I, I so uh, I don't know how to ask this next question. <laughs> uh, so I'm. Because the way, 
let me ask this. Do you, can you tell me a little bit about the different message you believe the play gives to the audience now versus the pre- previous iterations? I know what I think, but I'm very curious, like how you all feel like this lands differently than other iterations. You want me to start? You want to go? Yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. I'll talk about Chicago. Uh, in that time, I just say, I think Trump was in the White House and she felt the need to really address uh, uh, that reality of having a leader that really was clear, you know, was a white supremacist and didn't, you know, was confusing facts and all kinds of things. And she really wanted to have a hard point on it. So to your previous question, I think doing that version of the play might depend on who our leadership is in the country and where we are. Um, The Lincoln Center version was, she shifted it to be more of an indictment of uh, citizens and our complicity in in what goes on. Um, This version, she didn't feel like she needed to put uh, that sort of trauma up there after what we had just been through and wanted to give us something uh, uh, that all Americans can work towards and there's you know this gesture in the play where Moses and Kitsch lift up someone that had been brutalizing them and then eventually confesses their sins sees them as human beings and you know we're not really conditioned to forgive that way unless we are you know deeply Christian that's not (laughs) how it goes this person wronged me so I can put you over there Um, But that's not the gesture she wanted to make this time around. She wanted to say that, yeah, forgiveness is a beautiful, selfless thing. And um, there's going to be need to be some level of that in our country if we're going to move towards a common goal. Yeah. Yeah. the, The whole concept of radical forgiveness is just, I mean, that's something that really challenges people i think because like john said like yeah you know there's there's sections of of us as people who are like oh yeah you wronged me so you're over there and this is about challenging people's thoughts you know their their faith you know their their idea of humanity um and not just casting people away, but, you know, and being less judgmental, you know, there's redemption for everybody, all of us, not just one group of people or we're God's chosen or no, we all are God's chosen because God made all of us, you know, and to like get through to that particular, um, idea and concept of our humanity you know and our time on this earth i think that that is the hope that the end the new ending kind of embraces one thing she said to me to help unlock that was that not everyone's deserving of forgiveness or mercy that doesn't mean they don't get it right (laughs) and i was like oh okay Mm-hmm. which right. is like the hardest thing for me as I was reading through the script because the first time I saw Passover the minute Mr. walked on stage I did not trust him like it had deep-seated distrust 
the you minute too. he walked on stage. <laughs> and so like seeing like reading that forgiveness at the end really challenged me. Like seeing that radical forgiveness and that move to to forgive somebody who had been so awful, who could be so awful and like contained so much that in the world we see as as bad. And then seeing that forgiveness is so challenging. But I like I, I don't know how I've processed that yet. Like I, I literally, and it's one of the things like, I, I don't know how much you two, either of you two read reviews, but like reading the reviews, like not, again, not seeing uh, black critics reviewing this just like it happened in Chicago, like not seeing somebody wrestle with, with how that sits has been kind of frustrating. Um, I'm rambling, so like, if you have something you want to, no, you want to jump. This in. is all helpful. Like, uh, yeah. I, we do. We don't really go through reviews. Neither of us are really like. Uh, so I, I don't know who's been reviewing it. That's interesting to know because I was hoping that some black people would write about this show. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I'm sure you both saw the the whole controversy originally when it came out in Chicago, where just a slew of white people reviewed the show, and it was. Uh, yeah, it was, I wanted to review it, but I was on my way to grad school, so I missed it, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, Namir, yeah, you were going to say something. So no, I mean, and that's, yeah, it is challenging, you know what I mean? And it's more of an individual thing, I think. Um, because, I mean, uh, reviewers of a particular hue, you know what I mean? They just might look at it, you know, see Mr. or Ossifer in themselves and be like, oh, yes, well, oh, so there, there is, you know, some sort of redemption for me, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it's, it's when you think about like the history of, of all of the brutality and just the history of people of color in this country and how we've been treated you know what I mean radical forgiveness you know from black people is like it's challenging like what do you mean you know but also the undercurrent of that is who who do we want to be like who are we as people and who do we want to be you know for future generations who knows if we have to come back, you know, when we, you know, when we die or whatever, who knows if we have to come back here, you know what I mean? We don't know. So it's like challenging our thoughts and our concepts and our ideas of what we think, you know, what we've been taught, you know, it's very challenging. It challenges me. And I think, I think that's kind of where I'm landing these days on, on the script is just that idea that the message of we have to see each other as people, uh, because I feel like it's very clear that yes, Ossifer needs to see the two of you as people, see black people as people. But also at the same time, I realized that like, I wasn't seeing him as a person. <laughs> like if he is able to see us as people, I also need to be able to extend that grace to see him as an actual person who, and people are deserving of grace and forgiveness. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's complicated, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it it digs deep, and that's one of the the things I originally thought reading through it is like this ending kind of speaks to two different communities in different ways, and asks 
different things of, of different people. And I, I kind of love that. I love that, that dual layer of it. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I felt like uh, listening to that, I felt like it's, it's, it's New Testament on top of the Old Testament, the Passover and the, and the reckoning that Moses brings down, the plagues. And then it goes, we're in the New Testament, but we're all chosen. Like it's not just this one group that's going to take vengeance and get away from the Egyptians. It's going to be everyone's welcome in this garden. So, I mean, that's going through a whole, a whole theology in like 10 minutes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> which is right. it's, 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 but it's it's i mean it, it speaks to me i think it speaks to a lot of people but it all is it can it could be a tough it could be a tough for some folks i think yeah i think antoinette even goes uh, so far as to in the descriptions of the characters in the beginning of the script i think she has uh kids and ossifer down as uh one of the gods chosen and i think it was important to her to name that character in this version as well yeah um, just to put a point on that. One of the things I'm really looking for, Vincent Cunningham at The New Yorker is a wonderful critic. And since there have been no black critics reviewing this production yet, I'm looking forward to his review, not to put too much pressure on him. But one thing I, I know that he will bring to it is, is, is a sense of this, the way this piece is in dialogue with other black literature, both plays, Afrofuturist literature and all that, um, which I've seen not, not addressed in other reviews. Um, the one thing that you can't, that white critics do address in their reviews is, is the resonance that this piece is also in dialogue with Beckett, Waiting for Godot. Obviously, that's an open, acknowledged, acknowledged influence. I was also intrigued to learn before we went on that, that you both, you've acted in a lot of plays together, and one of them was True West, which is another sort of, you know, they're actual brothers, but it's sort of like doppelganger play with two people on stage fighting it out, struggling also loving each other, but uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I know, I think Bill Irwin was a, was a consultant on this production and Antoinette shared on Facebook and Instagram, I think that you all did a reading of Waiting for Godot in the room. Could you talk a little bit about what that illuminated for you and about the resonances that, that those kind of other plays bring to this one, if any? Yeah. Uh... What I noticed in Waiting for Godot was uh, the the games, the the things that they do to pass the time, you know, and those silences and the the panic one has when you feel like the only person that you have is going to leave you, you know that really like brought out a lot of a lot of different things and just the griminess of of humanity at times you know what i mean like that really brought out a lot of things too and i think that we were able to use all of that into you know uh further performances and rehearsals of you know, and deepening our characters and Passover um, from that, you know, and with Bill Irwin, just being able to be in our bodies more, you know, that was, that was like a real treat. I, I feel like, John, how you feel? Man, I've been an admirer of his for a while. I've seen him in a few things, met him in passing over the years and 
um, well, before I even get into that, in terms of Godot, yeah, Danya had us read Godot every time we've done this play. She just kind of has the cast cold read it. And I really think if, if Passover is going to be taught in, in schools, I know a lot of teachers are already working on it and want to. I feel like they should be side by side um, because there are just so many things. The way she borrows things, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. It's she captures the sort of essence of the thing and translates it into um, her Passover language. Uh, a lot of that is the confusion of time, um, the, the, the violence, the way it exists in um, Godot can be playful and it can be really truly violent the same way um, the, the, the main characters in Passover sort of have their sometimes violent games but also experience true violence uh, so that every time reading that it has uncovered more and more um, that that we're able to use in Passover and Bill I actually you know I got to see him we did this performance at Little Island you know the new park uh, in Man Manhattan on the west side we did this one night thing and he did some you know clowning out there and it was just, it opens my eyes to how you can interact with the audience. And and so we, we wanted to bring some of that into Passover. And he didn't just read the play with us. He, we got up and did our mirroring exercises. And <laughs> Antoinette got up there. and Because she wanted to play with how these guys inhabit the female body and play female characters in their you know lives together, and when they have permission to do that, and so there there was some exploration of of the the feminine in our rehearsal process, and Bill hopped up there with us and, and did some fun stuff with him and Antoinette. I mean, it's it's sort of a once in a lifetime thing. He also passed down some of his hat. Um, tricks to us as a hat thing with the back and forth yeah <laughs> so you don't do that i, I noticed i the one the one that I, I particularly love in the mirror is is the is the, the shoe you're scrubbing your shoe or i don't know what you're doing to your shoe exactly but that that that, that mimics uh i think is it is it vladimir i forget which is which is like never fit sorry i can't hear you rob oh sorry can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Sorry about that. I drop off too much. Yeah. Just the, just the, the, the shoe business. I mean, I, I think there's those call outs. I think the, the crust of the pizza crust and the, and the turnip or carrot or whatever it is. And, uh, and got got to, they, you know, those are enjoyable, uh, call outs. Again, this is the way a lot of white theater folks and white theater critics like key into this. And I, I don't want to put it just in that, in that category, but that's one, one area. You know, one thing you said earlier in the mirror that, I, that jumped out at me was, I think you said that you and, and John and Gabe are all very similar. And I, I don't know if you just meant close because I, I do think of you, I was, I was trying to think, you mentioned True West, I was thinking, have you guys ever switched roles in rehearsal just to see, could you ever conceive of doing that? And I, I really can't, I, it's, no, it's, no, it's no knock on your versatility. I feel like these characters live on you and you live on them and sit on you in the perfect way. It's hard to imagine. I wonder if you ever think about that, or that's not the kind of similarity you're talking about. Like you inter you're not interchangeable. No, no. Sim uh, similarities, like I mean, like how we work. You know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. And um, I wouldn't see you of us switching roles. And- <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't see it. I, I can't. And again, it's not a lack of imagination or like your versatility. But, but it's it is like- interesting that in True West, you know, I'm the I'm the sort of put together bookish uh beta in these in these two brothers and the mirror got his chance to push me around a bit. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> he enjoyed, I'm sure. Well, I mean that that's a play which works well with a double casting because I know you I think I don't know if they allow everyone to do what John John Riley and Phil Hoffman did. But the characters are sort of in each other. They're like they're like mirror images in a way, even more than the characters in this play or, or got out there. They're, and so I could I could actually see either of you in those roles. Like I could see, it makes perfect sense either way, right? Uh, the sort of wild man and buttoned up person is in both those roles, and it, I think you know in both of you in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. but, but this is more of a classic like duo uh, team with one. You know, I don't know. If it's alpha beta. I don't know what you how you define it, but it's a recognizable team. Uh, the way this one works, the way Passover works. Um, you also mentioned that you play music beforehand. That was a fun detail to get you sort of, I don't know, in the mood or set the tone. And I think the night I saw it uh, Tuesday, you said you played Stevie Wonder Fingertips. <laughs> you tell me some of the other uh, other tunes that you uh, help get you in the headspace. Uh, like in every show, like we we huddle up and we say, okay, what we feel like playing tonight, and each one of us, you know, you know, uh, chooses what we're gonna play. Like as far as um, the the kind of music we're going to play, like during the play, you know what I mean? Like uh, we. I look at the play like the play, the script is the the music score. And it's like every night it can be the blues, like Muddy Waters, or it can be like some hard bebop, you know, um, or it can be some funk. We play funk, you know, or some Gil Scott Heron. we we can like okay that's that's what i'm feeling tonight you know and we'll go in the dressing room listen to a a tune or two to get us in that mind frame and somehow that particular music will show up in the play in our bodies or how we uh might say a line or something like that and this is just a fun way to like John said earlier, to keep us on our toes and to really listen, you know, to one another and to just have fun, you know, keep it fresh because there's there's nothing worse than doing a play uh, the same way, you know, every (laughs) night. It's like that, that's, we're, we're not robots, we're human beings, you know what I mean? So it has to be different. We have to find something fresh every night to, to hold on to, which is great, I think. Yeah. I wanted to ask briefly about the the mental health stipend, which we talked about earlier, and just uh, 
you know, not, not to find out how you're spending it, but just like the, the sort of, I think the message of support that gives you as much as the actual material, you know, money, extra money for it. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that. I know you said earlier in the mirror that the last production at Lincoln Center really sat with you in a, in a heavy way and this one less so, but I imagine it's still, this one's still got to sit with you and, and maybe, maybe you need to come down from those, those buzzes a little bit, you know, we need something to support just a balance, a balanced life. So tell me a little bit about that. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, it's uh, playing these, this particular role, you know, and it's telling this particular story. It, it can weigh on our, our minds and as well as our bodies, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of tension that we carry to be able to, you know, tell this story. And that tension can be, you know, anywhere on our bodies, you know what I mean? And luckily we've been afforded, you know, a, a stipend to help manage you know those those stresses you know to uh keep us as healthy as possible because i mean it's one thing to do this without you know a global pandemic without having you know to wear a mask probably 70 75 percent of the day you know what i mean um so yeah it's it's taxing so hopefully this is something that becomes standard you know in all theater you know because it's not all fun and games you know what i mean it's it's not like oh yeah we're gonna sing and dance for you know two hours two and a half hours and you know that's taxing too because of what it does to your body you know what i mean so and what it does to your voice eight shows a week so it's just like I hope this becomes standard, you know, to keep performers healthy as possible. Yeah, shout out to Matt Ross, our producer. I mean, Absolutely. from our epidemiologist to our COVID uh, specialist to our physical therapist and his mental health side. It's really just our intimacy coordinator. Um, all of those things say we see you as a performer and we're here to support you. And he's he's found a way to to do all those things. So I'm I'm really appreciative. And you know, I hope that this becomes the standard, like Namir said. I, I feel like this whole process from beginning to end should probably be studied to see, you know where we succeeded, where we failed, and, and right. how we can continue to do better. I think it's speaking a really good start coming back. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, uh, just kind of looking toward the future, both in terms of what you both are up to after uh, Passover, but is there anything specifically you're taking from this experience? Like you're talking about the mental health stipend, is there anything else you're taking from this experience uh, into your future work? Certainly, I want to continue to uh, place more focus on how a, a show is going to affect me physically and emotionally and mentally 
that's something I'm very interested in exploring, um, just in terms of the content of, of what we're working on. Um, and also trying to be intentional about the art that I'm putting out into the world. There's certain things uh, early in your career that you, you say yes to because you need a job. And I feel like there will always sort of be those requirements, but also, well, what do you then say no to? You know, right. when, when, when is a, a, a piece of art not aligning with your life philosophy and, and what you want to put out into the world? And um, do you have this sort of conviction to say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that one because I need to make room to tell a story like Passover? <clears throat> so that's something I'm hoping to take forward. Yeah, I'm I'm looking to take this the same things, you know, because it's something about integrity in work that is very paramount to one's holistic health, you know. Uh because it's like, yeah, I could, you know, do a play or whatever. Oh, it's going to pay me a lot of money or I'm going to get a lot of exposure, but you got to live with yourself, <laughs> you know? And really that's, that's the, that's the key. You know what I mean? You, you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and who am I? Who, who, who do I want to be? You know what I mean? Who is this turning me into, you know? So, yeah, just, just take all, take everything in stride, you know. This is probably, on a personal note, this is probably the first experience that I've had over my career where I have been completely focused, but also not just focused, but completely like, aware and in the moment because you know I, I would have the tendency to you know okay yeah i'm doing this but i'm also focused on the next thing it's like nope i'm living in this in this moment right now and i'm enjoying every second of it you know so that's that's what i'm that's the main thing i'm taking that's so hard and so valuable Namir. good lord yeah yeah. Uh, speaking of like back on your looking back on your career, you both are, are Steppenwolf ensemble members. So I'd love to know like your favorite memories uh, at Steppenwolf. Do you have a show that comes to mind? Uh, any particular moments that come to mind? So many. <laughs> so many. Some of them involve Namir. How to Baltimore was a lot of fun because we had a lot of ensemble members and a lot of people on stage, a lot of stuff going on. I was playing guitar and singing. I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I love working <laughs> on that with Namir with his little ball. Uh-huh. Um, there was one experience I had, my first show at Steppenwolf with Amy Morton. It was Bruce Norris play. And I heard she was the one that nobody could break on stage. and. There was a bunch of hijinks going on and I was young and I didn't know any better and I thought I could handle it. So I put a note on the door 
where she had to enter. Uh, that was a callback to this movie she did, Rookie of the Year, where I was like, Amy, if you get nervous tonight, just remember to float it. And I'm out on stage and we're waiting for her entrance and she doesn't come on <laughs> for a couple seconds. And then finally she comes on and at some point in the scene, she shoots me a look and I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So for the rest of the production, not only her, everybody was trying to get my ass. You <laughs> made it brutal, brutal, brutal. So it was like, welcome, welcome to Steppenwolf, young blood. <laughs> yeah. How about I mean, you, Demir? What do you got? Well, my first show at Steppenwolf was Hot Out Baltimore, and this was long before I was an ensemble member. It was when I first moved to Chicago, and um. The thing that floored me was you had all these ensemble members, like people of note, you know, who doing, you know, big things and there was no ego. And that was the first time that I've ever been in like a production where there's no problem child. There's always one, <laughs> but Hot Baltimore never happened. You know, and that stuck with me. And then when I became an ensemble member, um, like I, I, I'm, I've just been floored by like the immense talent in this ensemble, like that I've been fortunate enough to, to work with Alana Arenas, John, you know, just crazy. You know, John Vincent Meredith and just cra crazy, crazy, crazy talent. And just being able to watch these people like formulate characters who aren't characters, they're like fully fledged people, you know, and it's been like a real inspiration to me. So that's been the major thing for me in my short tenure. So I know you're focused, you said you're focused on this moment. Uh, I know we can't speculate whether Bug is gonna, is Bug scheduled to come back at Steppenwolf or no? Yes, it's scheduled to come back in the late fall. And, you know, I'm like, I, I gotta learn lines again, but. <laughs> <laughs> I heard. I heard no, from, from JR and others, I heard nothing but great things about that production. And it sounded like it was like ready to just load into to another town, let's just say. I, I'm not going to jinx it by saying. Oh, which, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah which, which, which town it was headed for. But yeah, no, I, I uh, that was one of my formative theater experiences in New York. I, on the West Coast mostly, but I saw that production with Mike Shannon. And it was one of the most riveting things I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, working with Carrie Coon yeah. and the rest of the cast is just, I mean, being directed by David Cromer is just like mind blowing for me. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, it was quite the experience and I'm looking forward to seeing how we all deepen the story, you know, with this upcoming iteration, which is going to be fun. I started reading it again yesterday and I got excited all over again. 
I can imagine it's going to play a little differently after COVID, you know, the idea of being infected oh. with bugs and uh, you know, Let me tell paranoia. Yeah. Let me tell you something. To be thwarted, <laughs> be to be doing a play about a bug and then get thwarted, the whole world just stops because of a bug. Yeah. There's yeah, nothing yeah. like it in the world. Yeah, I, you know, I literally just thought of that now, but uh, yeah. So I'm looking for not, again, let's not distract from, we're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to all the work you do, both of you. But for right now, let's just celebrate this moment where you are leading us back to theater, back to the, I mean, I don't want to sound cheesy, but literally in this moment of uncertainty where JR and I are looking across the country and wondering about theaters opening or not, I literally feel like your play was like a vision of the promised land. It's there. I can see it. I can see how this works. I can feel it. And you guys are leading us there. And I really just so glad you could spend this afternoon. Thank you for, for your time today. And, um, you know, break a leg tonight and for the rest of the run. It's just uh, a total joy to talk to you. Thank you, Rob. Thank Rob. you, JR. We're looking thanks, forward JR. to your articles, brother. Yes, yes thanks for reading. <laughs> All right. And thanks for listening, everybody. Take care until next time. All right. Bye-bye.